Welcome to Behind the Yellow Boxes, your one-stop comics history podcast. I'm Steph, your co-host and friendly neighborhood archivist. And I'm Brooke, your not-so-friendly, self-declared comics expert. We're two comic nerds with a lot of opinions, and we think it's important to know your history if we want to understand why comics are the way they are. Sometimes, to fully understand the comic landscape, though, you have to really dig into the milestone stories that lay the foundation for modern characters and stories. And sometimes, even though you feel like you know every story beat, reading the story itself will build some rather important context. Also, usually, the greats are actually pretty good after all, it turns out. Sometimes they're not, too. Expectations and conventions are always changing, and comics as a medium have only existed in an ongoing format like we recognize them for a little over a hundred (laughs) years. Yeah, I guess that's the real risk with classics in any medium. Trendsetters and convention breakers set the new trends and conventions themselves. It's a real cycle. There's sort of an acquired taste required for reading comics of different eras, and your mileage will vary based on how much you can accept that. I'm fairly well-read, but I still have my preferences. You've had to witness my takes on the Silver Age. You are not a fan. Not at all. So are you suffering through telling us a Silver Age story today? No. Today, I think we need to hit a subject near and dear to my heart, but a little more mysterious for newer fans. A near unbreachable subject in comics canon. Oh boy. Is this X-Men? This is X-Men, yes. The Dark Phoenix Saga. Okay, so you're going to condense down a storyline, one of the most infamously convoluted ones that took over four years of published comics into a single episode. Also, we get to talk about Firebirds and Bondage Gear. Absolutely. Fair enough. Sounds like a plan. So let me set the scene a bit as our local historian. Please do. Chris Claremont is one of those ubiquitous writers when it comes to comics canon. Just like Silver Age is considered a hallmark of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee's collaborations on Fantastic Four, the work of Chris Claremont on X-Men starting in 1975 is credited with changing the face of the industry from the Silver Age to the Bronze Age, where many of the more modern conventions we associate with comics today are established. Of course, like most comics that are given these kind of era-changing credits, Claremont's work is sort of hallmarked by straddling that line between Silver Age and Bronze Age more than, say, Grant Morrison's new X-Men run uh, that would act like a sequel of sorts to Claremont's in the early 2000s. Some conventions die hard, and there are some notable style details and fanciful writing that is harder for fans of more modern comics to stomach when they aren't huge fans of Silver Age tones. My main point on that, though, would be to direct you to the comics DC was putting out at the same time and compare notes. The goofiness gap is real. Claremont's control over the X-Men books would continue well into the 1990s with various X-Men titles, making him the longest-running writer of any run at Marvel and one of the longest-running contributors to the industry in general made more impressive even still by the fact that in retirement today, he'll still publish X-Men runs and one-offs periodically, providing a real dedication to X-Men characters and lore that you don't often see outside of the likes of other industry big names like Denny O'Neill over on Batman. That amount of creative control wouldn't really be possible if he wasn't successful either. Comics as a medium has to deal with a balancing act of creative output and sales-driven pressure. 
You need to hit on that sweet spot to find real lasting success. And that's difficult even for the greats, like we talked about in our episode on Jack Kirby. So regardless of your personal opinions on some of these storylines, I think you're hard-pressed to show any evidence for Claremont not deserving some real respect for his contributions to the X-Men. And I don't think that is better seen than in what is often considered one of his career highlights, the Dark Phoenix Saga. The Dark Phoenix Saga is one of the early climaxes to Claremont's run, and arguably where his success and ability to continue writing X-Men for the next two decades stems from. The story begins in 1976, just a year into Claremont's landmark run, and has four years of comics developing it across Uncanny X-Men main series before wrapping up in 1980. It's also going to have some shifts across those four years that will be due to some pretty heavy editorial leanings. Hmm. Late 1970s Marvel. Editorial interference. Is it time for Jim Shooter? You know it is. But let's talk about how that story develops before we start picking at the bones. One of those things people know about X-Men even before getting invested in them, just by cultural osmosis, is Jean Grey. I myself am included in this. I am infamously not well-versed in X-Men, but even I know a few things about her. She's incredibly powerful, possibly dangerous. Like she's up there with like Wanda Maximoff levels of everyone's always like, oh, is she going to go evil again and ruin everything? And I think she dies a lot and comes back a lot. Am I right? You are. But that wasn't always the case, especially not before Claremont's X-Men run. Jean Grey was a relatively low-level telekinetic prior to the Claremont run, and she completely lacked telepathy. Her most notable attribute, while being written by Stan Lee, was that she was the girl, and everyone fell in love with her. And while, much like Invisible Woman, she would prove to have narrative potential and intrigue beyond those simple physical characteristics, it's hard to credit that to Lee's original writing of her. Oh, classic Stan. I suppose it's nice that he didn't make her chew out the fan letter column while crying, at least. Poor Sue Storm. Claremont's X-Men came with a lot of changes, especially to the lineup of the main characters. Before Professor X's team was the original five, Cyclops, Beast, Angel, Iceman, and Jean, who went by Marvel Girl. But the lineup most associated with classic X-Men today was all thanks to Claremont. He brought along fan-favorite characters to the team, such as Nightcrawler, Storm, Colossus, and Wolverine, along with some others who didn't quite have the sizable impact of those four. So Jean begins to be more powerful under Claremont's pen, as well as gets a special gal pal in Storm and a love triangle between herself, Cyclops, and Wolverine. I mean, that sounds pretty compelling on its own. Uh, Did we need to add danger and dying to that list? Well, some creatives behind the scenes thought we did. According to John Byrne, part of the inspiration for what would become known as the Dark Phoenix saga was that Chris Claremont kept writing Jean, now going by Phoenix, as stronger and stronger. Pretty soon, people were wondering what the rest of the giant team was even for. This led to Stephen Grant making the suggestion that she become a villain. This sounds like people who argue that if Superman is so powerful, we don't need the Justice League. I guess strong superhero boring 
ultra powerful villain is better and sexy. Well, especially when we're discussing something like female empowerment in the late 70s and early 80s, we start to run into some questions about motivation here. After all, what is more intimidating than a powerful woman questioning the subservient role that she has played without question for all these years? Sure, but that seems to be a reading pretty deep into these things. I mean, we're talking about a Bronze Age superhero comic from Marvel. I love overthinking things. That's the basis for our friendship. But do we know these choices are on purpose? It's a fair question, which is why I'm happy to have a historically inclined person such as yourself here as a co-host. Because Chris Claremont's solution to dealing with the downfall of Jean Grey could not have been more on the nose if you know your history. Ooh, well, now I'm excited. Well, Chris Claremont introduces the villains responsible for the temptation, in a very literal sense, of Jean Grey. The Hellfire Club. The Hellfire Club that was a real thing that was an actual literal sex cult that several historical figures attended in, in, including Benjamin Franklin the founding father the one and the same right so sexual politics are uh, built in to the themes of the dark phoenix saga is what you're saying that's exactly what i'm saying Though, whether or not the actual existing Hellfire Club in our world wanted to take over the world or just have kinky sex parties is up for debate. The one in this comic was out for both. And part of converting Jean Grey from the sweet girl down the block to a threat who posed real danger was for her to be tempted to evil by the modern-day Hellfire Club. Jean had always had the power and strength she was beginning to display as the Phoenix, but she had been held back by oppression and expectations that society had for her and had for women in general. She got a taste of power by being provided that opportunity to see herself in a more villainous role. Half of the fantasy she was manipulated by put her in the past where she existed as a crown loyalist during the American Revolution, a common villain archetype for American readers. The other half of the fantasy, I suppose, is far less subtle with its presentation. Yes, uh, she wore all black. She had a whip, a corset, thigh-high boots, thick makeup. Dominatrix. Um, She's dressed as a dominatrix. Yeah, uh, there's no getting around this one. And for what it's worth, the entire concept isn't wholly new. Chris Claremont has never made it a secret that he was inspired by the Avengers television show. One of the spies uh, from Britain, not the Marvel Avengers. Exactly. One episode of the British Adventures, A Touch of Brimstone, used the Hellfire Club similarly. In fact, a lot of the members of the Hellfire Club in the comics have physical appearance modeled after the casts of the show. Having gone through clips of the show, it's... Don't do it! Uncanny. God damn it. (laughs) That all said, I'm far less sure how any of that explains the way Jean imagines her teammates and friends in her sexcapades fantasy. 
If she's the evil crown loyalist during the American Revolution, the rest of the X-Men were rebels in the American militias, including Aurora Monroe, Storm, Jane's best friend, as, well, an African slave. You know, I've never heard what a capital Y yike sounds like until now, but yike. Everything we're describing about this story is pretty transgressive, not just for the 70s, but for today. The idea of using what basically boils down to the virgin whore complex to build the tragic fall of a beloved character is radical, even today. But it's an incredibly fitting touch for a character like Jean and for the meta situation she is stuck in. As a woman, and almost uniquely as a woman given the medium of superhero comics, she is placed in an unwinnable situation. She can remain passive and subdued and continue to be a hero, but one who hasn't unlocked the grand potential of her character. Or she can embrace power and prominence, but only as someone vilified and feared. Which one is ultimately better? And how fair is it that someone, anyone, should be put in the position based on something as ultimately inconsequential as their gender identity whatever something is that controversial on paper you know that the atmosphere surrounding getting it out on that piece of paper to begin with has to be pretty difficult and that's where our comics history comes in handy because at the time marvel had an editor-in-chief pretty infamous for his editorial interference in charge our beloved jim shooter who will probably one day get an episode of his own Jim, no gays in the Marvel Universe, Shooter, approved the initial script for the Dark Phoenix saga with the intention of Phoenix becoming a cosmic villain for the X-Men. And he was very much outraged when he learned that Jean's culpability was meant to be in question and even leave room for redemption later on. Louise Simonson has spoken before about how it is her feeling that Shooter's anger at the changes to the Dark Phoenix saga led to editor Jim Salkrip being taken off the series several issues earlier than was planned. Shooter did not want Salakrip and Claremont's plan of letting Gene live, but depowered to stand. He likened it to taking the German army away from Hitler and letting him go back to governing Germany. While there is certainly an argument to be made for moral consequences in stories, and Shooter, being of Polish descent, certainly had an impact on his perspective, it's important to note here that Shooter was saying this to Chris Claremont, a Jewish man who used the X-Men in characters such as Magneto and Kitty Pride to discuss the Holocaust and Judaism explicitly over the years in his comics. John Byrne and Jim Salkrip went up to bat for Gene against Jim Shooter. Their argument was that Gene being possessed by the Dark Phoenix shouldn't be held accountable for something that the Phoenix Force did. It was more like the Exorcist holding a little girl taken over by demons for what the demons did. Certainly, that would be a different kind of movie. Eventually, the resolution that got published was decided on. Gene committing suicide after the Dark Phoenix persona resurfaces at the climax. Who is at fault for this decision varies. Shooter declares Claremont suggested it first in frustration, but Claremont and Byrne object, though the final framing was their admitted invention. It's difficult to fully parse, though. Phoenix, the untold story, holds a transcript of a roundtable discussion between Claremont, Byrne, Simonson, Salakrup, Shooter, and inker Terry Austin. 
Like so much of comics history, when we do these historical retrospectives, it really comes down to hearsay. In 1982, Chris Claremont used a DC Marvel Company crossover to have Darkseid resurrecting Grey as the Dark Phoenix, and Jean sacrifices herself again to stop Darkseid. It's amazing how these major company crossovers used to happen and be a big win for both companies, but they're pretty much unthinkable nowadays. Hey, we can dream. So that's where the meme of Jean coming back to life comes from? Um, only partially. Since the DC-Marvel crossover tend to be something of a continuity limbo, Jean's resurrections would only really become famous and a thing due to the contribution of a completely different voice in comics. One that started out as something of an ascended fan. I mean, most writers these days are now ascended fans, but it's still really interesting to hear about how how someone like that managed to change the course of a character's history. According to future comic writer Kurt Busick, Jim Shooter declared Jean Grey would not be revived unless it was done in such a way as to render her guiltless of the Dark Phoenix's crimes. Crimes that included killing aliens and less, you know, having a dark, subversive sex fantasy where her best friend was an African slave. This led to the discovery that Jean Grey was still on the bottom of Jamaica Bay in suspended animation following the original shuttle crash and the Phoenix entity had used her body and mind as a lens. I'm really not sure that explains genocide better than it explains the slavery kink, in all honesty. It sounds like that's a fan theory. It was a fan theory. Kurt Busick's. Busick shared the idea in 1983, and it eventually reached John Byrne, who gave it to Bob Layton in 1985, where they used an X-Factor Avengers Fantastic Four crossover to bring Jean back that exact way. That's pretty impressive considering forums, Twitter, Tumblr, and even emails are about 20 years away from being the go-to connection between fans and creators. But that really shows the impact of the time. Fans were so moved, so enthralled by the Dark Phoenix saga and how much of it stuck out compared to other comics of the moment. They were literally finding creators at conventions, sending snail mail and anything else they could think of just to pull more for the, from the story, more from the characters and creators. Things we kind of take for granted nowadays when we can harass creators on Twitter asking them where our favorite characters are. It's true. And the lasting legacy of Dark Phoenix Saga includes more comic storylines than can be counted. Animated adaptations across several series, including the original X-Men animated series, an unfinished subplot from X-Men Evolution, and the season finale of Wolverine and the X-Men. There's also several attempts to adapt the Dark Phoenix Saga in films, such as X2 and X-Men's Last Stand, and the more recent X-Men Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix. None of the film adaptations have received much praise compared to the comic source material. Including from you. It's true. My tears over ruined potential could fill many a merch mug at this point. But that's also part of the beauty of comic books. There were years of buildup and characterization surrounding this culminating moment. That's something difficult to replicate in comics itself these days let alone non-serialized media. Some stories are just uniquely of their medium, and the older I get, the more I appreciate good comics for being good comics. It's also pretty of its moment, too. 
The sexual revolution and women's liberation is an ongoing thing, but the zeitgeist for the version seen in the Dark Phoenix saga was a very 70s and 80s. Sometimes feminism is a flaming redhead's world-devouring bird being strong enough to hold back her boyfriend's laser fire until it goes off at the right time. You know, I like how, like, this is our condensed version of this. Like, there's so much stuff we had to leave out so this didn't become a two-hour monstrosity. And it's still really weird. Very, very weird. Like, we didn't even talk about the aliens. (laughs) Yeah, uh, if I got into alien politics, this would have easily been over an hour podcast. You know, sometimes we just have to let the sexual liberation, politics, white feminism, gym shooters, blatant kink, not gym shooters, kink, uh, Charles Claremont's kink speak for itself. And not to, you know, form a really awkward bridge here, but speaking of dominatrixes and kink, we're going to talk about comic wrecks. My record for today, we're going a bit, we're going into the uh, two, early 2000s-ish. Uh, the other dominatrix of comic books, Catwoman herself, as portrayed by Ed Brubaker. Uh, the series uh, is really fantastic. Uh, first two volumes in particular of the collected reprints. Uh, just tells the story of Selena Kyle being an independent character from Batman with a huge supporting cast, gorgeous art by Darwin Cook, and just generally being a really tight, really smart series that really, really defines Selena Kyle as a character for me. Uh, for a bit of a more recent comic recommendation that incorporates a lot of Jean Grey and the ever-evolving place of women in modern context, I have to recommend Tom Taylor's X-Men Red that ran from 2018. Uh, the 12-issue deal with a newly revived Jean who is displaced and looking for a way to make an impact on the modern world, one that best uses her talents and empowers mutants uh, the world over. The team Jean builds and her own struggles throughout are a great character study and remind me a lot of the transitional position Jean is often placed in. And there you have it. Thank you so much for listening to this. Please subscribe, leave a review or a rating, tell a friend, whatever you can do. Uh, We're really excited to get this going. If you've got an episode suggestion, thoughts about x-men or just really like comics you can tweet us at at yellow boxes pod or email us at yellow boxes podcast at gmail.com special thanks to kevin mackliad for the music that serves as our intro and outro feeling good thanks for listening
you know, I think a chastity belt would probably have been a better solution, but you know. You know, that's not very often that we can say things like that. No, so. you know what? That, that is a not common one. <laughs>